0: All right, guys, in this mini series of podcast episodes, I'm calling stories that should have made it into the book or the movie Black Hawk Down, but didn't. Today, I get a chance to go down memory lane with an aviator that I have the absolute utmost respect for. There may not be another person on the planet that I trust more, respect more in an aircraft, than my guest today Dan Gelato and I guess I should say that I even have a couple of comments and maybe a conversation or two that I probably shouldn't be sharing on the air about just how incredible the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment is the group that we affectionately refer to as the Night Stalker. On this episode I get a chance to talk to one of my favorite Night Stalkers of all time. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. And before I get into the conversation with Dan, I just want to say thanks to the Solomon Foundation. Those folks are sponsoring this episode. And if you want to know more about how they help the local church grow, how they help people get an excellent return on their investment and make an internal impact at the same time. We'll just swing over and check them out at thesolomonfoundation.org. Now, here's my conversation with one of the greatest helicopter pilots I've ever seen in my life, Dan Hey, Dan. Thanks for being on this episode of Unbeatable with me.
1: Hi, Jeff. How are you?
0: I'm great, man. It is good to see your face.
1: It's good to see yours. It's been way too long. I agree. Yeah.
0: Um, we were supposed to get together pretty soon. It doesn't look like that's going to work out. And I'm calling this mini series Stories That Should Have Made It to the Book or the Movie. I believe deserved to be in the book or the movie, but didn't make it. And your story is incredible, man. Um, in fact, I really think there's a couple of comments that I need to make during this interview that I've never been able to say to you of, up until now face to face about what i saw and how much you inspired me during that fight
1: no jeff, uh, jeff i appreciate what you're doing with podcasts and you know i think uh, most of us still lie along the road of being quiet professionals and nobody wants to talk about you know what happened 30 years ago yeah you know but the biggest fight since vietnam and uh it changed so many ttps you know uh, techniques yeah. tactics tactics techniques and procedures that carried forward into the uh, current fight for uh, oef and oif um there's so much that happened those during that event that we just kind of moved on from it you know yeah. and we move everybody else has moved on but it's good talking about it and it's good uh always good catching up with you by the way
0: i'm glad you said that because it is good to talk about these stories that i don't know that i would be having these conversations today if it wasn't for us coming together a couple of times over the last 30 years. Um, But even when the book and the movie Black Hawk Down came out, my mother saw the movie in the movie theater and she had, she knew that I was in Somalia. She didn't watch the news, so she didn't know what happened. She watches the movie and she calls me sobbing uncontrollably and said, Jeff, I just watched the movie and I had no idea what happened to you and your buddies over there. And I said, Just what you, you, the comment you just made, we were quiet professionals, mom, and this isn't polite Thanksgiving dinner table conversation. So I just kind of kept it to myself until the movie came out. And now I get the opportunity to talk about it a lot.
1: And it was a different era back then. I mean, 1993, we had no cell phones, and no uh, Wi-Fi, no um, social media. And, you know, there was events that happened, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the beginning of the whole thing with me that uh, caused us to just kind of do our job, you know, and then afterwards uh, we we dealt with the aftermath of it all, you know? Yeah. uh, Some
0: people are listening and they can't even remotely imagine a world without cell phones and internet and social media and instant communication. I wrote letters back and forth to my wife. They went on the big C5 bird back and forth to the States. And more than once, we got the letters out of order. So I don't even know what she's talking about. True story, Dan. When I get letter number two that says, hey, the baby and I are, and I was like, what baby are you referring to? (laughs) I don't know what baby you're talking about. When letter number one shows up a week later that says "Congratulations, Daddy, we're pregnant for the first time," Um, that's the no, that's the uh, age of communication that you and I lived in. What seems like a hundred years ago, back in uh, Somalia. Um, I want people to know about your incredible career as an aviator. You retired. As a CW-5, very few human beings in American military have made it to the rank of Chief Warrant Officer 5. But Dan, I think you have more service in the military, I'm not exaggerating here, than anybody I know personally in my life. With 40 years, basically off and on, 40 years of total service to our country Man, I cannot tell you thank you enough for all that you've done for us.
1: Thanks for saying so, Jeff. And, you know, it's, you can't eat the elephant all at one time. It, right. It's one bite at a time, you know. And I never thought in 1976 when I enlisted as an E-1 uh, in the military police corps that uh, 30 or uh, 40 years later that I would retire as a CW-5 aviator. Yeah. You know, but it's amazing. It's an amazing path, you know, amazing journey. You know, it's not the destination that's an important; it's the journey it that, is you yep. know kind of makes everything uh, more appropriate. Yeah. And thank you for saying so. I, I really appreciate that,
0: um, Dan. I've been on stages for years, all over the world, telling people about the men that we I had the privilege of serving with, and I never talk about the night stalkers without ta- without using this language and i mean every word of it so anybody's ever heard me say this from the stage i meant every word of it these are the greatest helicopter pilots on the planet there isn't even a close second and you spent many many years with the night stalkers let's talk about how you went from being a private mp uh, M- uh mp soldier to becoming a helicopter pilot and doing the incredible uh, in your incredible career as an aviator.
1: First of all, the the night stalkers uh, are an amazing group of people because of the people. Yeah, uh, uh, they you know they were formed out of a failed um, rescue hostage rescue attempt oh, in no. 1980 in Tehran, and they <clears throat> the nation identified the fact that they needed a premier uh, helicopter force to really support the ground forces that were established. Yours. Um, back many many years ago and then obviously uh, um, another organization that was formed just a few years yeah. before that failed yep. attempt um, but they they continue to do, amaze me just because of the people associated with it and people wanted to do more than what's expected of them yeah. so they train hard and they fight hard and they are passionate about what they do uh, but it's a grind But my career i mean my my career started as an MP because my dad was a cop and now I didn't got know a that. Of the All right. law enforcement guy. Yeah. Uh, lasted two years, and then I, I met some special forces guys. Uh, they were going through ANOC, the Advanced Noncommissioned uh-huh. Officer Course. Uh, talked me into changing my job to a combat engineer. with the Airborne School, with the SF School.
0: You were an um, 18 Echo. Is that
1: you know, right? I was a 12th Bravo, Bravo S, oh. but I was an eighteen Charlie eventually. 18
0: Charlie, yeah, okay. So
1: I was a demolitions guy. All right. Uh, served on an A-team uh, for a while and then started jumping out of airplanes for a living and met these awesome parachutists called the Golden Knights.
0: Yeah?
1: Assessed, uh, got picked up on the Golden Knights, um, and spent four years jumping out of airplanes for a living. What? And then met these aviators in '80s in the '80s that were Vietnam era uh, pilots that had 40 and 50 air medals, and they were just unbelievable warrant officers out there serving, you know, in the Golden Knights. And they convinced me to apply to flight school, and that started the whole path of wow. this aviation thing. That it's just it just went from one thing to another, and I got offered to go to this, this event and this selection wow. and, and this assessment and this training and
0: it's amazing,
1: you know, looking back on, it's amazing how you, you go down this path and you try yeah. to figure out where to go on this crossroads. Man,
0: I got to explain a few things to the audience just now. OK, you have just went literally from the best to the best to the best in a very short period of time. 18 Series, the Special Forces, the Green Berets of the U.S. Army. Nobody can do that mission that they do all over the world better. And then you go to the Golden Knights, and for the listening audience, this is the United States Army's exhibition parachute team, which goes and competes. Well, they demonstrate uh, skydiving capabilities, or they compete in skydiving competitions all over the world, and very regularly bring home gold medals. I had no idea. I was a sky. I, I did sky. Or, I mean, I had the skydiving mission in the Ranger Regiment for almost twenty years. Um, and I have a lot of jumps under my belt, but I don't even need to ask to know you have far more jumps than I do. How many times did you jump when you were with the Golden Knights? Yeah, so Five I have figure.
1: I have a little over six thousand. Six
0: thousand jumps,
1: and you know a little over ten thousand flight hours. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm addicted to the air, Jeff. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah. very much. Uh, you got me by about 5,725 for <laughs> 5,750 jumps. you got a, a little bit of a, a you know a, advantage on me there.
1: but I had i I'll tell you a real quick story I had a great advantage and really great um, surprise to go to jump school in 2014 as my daughter was attending oh, jump school. Oh, That's so awesome. And so here's this old raggedy w5. Uh, and it's a good story because I, I had been on Halo status for 18 years before yeah, that. And, yeah. uh, I had to get current in the static line world. So I made a jump in June and then went down to jump school in July. You jumped to, with her. Tell me to you jump jumped with, with her. my daughter. Oh, so that's sitting in the so one,
0: amazing, man. Sitting in the C
1: 130 with her. And uh, it was the most memorable event because we, we stood up, and uh, you'll appreciate this because you're, you're a jump master and you're a very experienced static liner. We stood up and I tried to hook up and the safety was in my face because I was having a problem trying to get the double gated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, static line
0: hook my
1: daughter is sitting next to me and she's just laughing at me She's thinking i'm such a rude she's like
0: this this novice doesn't know what he's doing in an airplane i
1: finally finally just put my hands up and i gave up and the safety had to undo my my (laughs) static line and hook me up (laughs) oh
0: that's so funny and people are probably looking at you like this guy's only had two or three jumps in his life (laughs) meanwhile six thousand jumps later i'm Dude, that is a memory that yeah, yeah. I would cherish, being able to be we, with your daughter on one of her first Oh my jobs. God,
1: we, we ran off Fryer drop zone, you know, at
0: Benning. Yeah. Um,
1: and uh, I guess more of these days, but uh, we had such a good memory of that. Oh, that's event, so you know, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I want to try to explain. And this I was thinking about it before this episode. This is going to be hard for me to do. I want to try to explain with your help, Dan, just how amazing the night stalkers are. So play along with me, William. Um, I have, I was thinking about it, probably a thousand combat missions in the air. And most of them, 80, maybe close to 90% of them have all been in night stalker helicopters. The 10, 20% that have been in other, with other units, I didn't realize just how good the night stalkers were until I flew in combat with other units so i want people to understand just how talented you and the other night stalker pilots are the whole unit and and like you just said it's the people it's not the aircraft it's not the equipment it's not even the amazing training though the training itself is incredible it's the people that are in the aircraft that make all the difference but um one of my earliest memories of being in a, a, a 160th Black Hawk was In training in Panama and those uh, we were I was in the the reconnaissance detachment of the Ranger Regiment we were inserting ahead of a Ranger battalion to go do a little reconnaissance mission and there was a Black Hawk that was supposed to fly us in as fast and as low as it could insert us in uh, into the jungle in a little jungle opening and then get out of there this helicopter was flying through the Chagres River And it was banking turns so low and so fast that the blades were splitting the water at the surface level in the Chagurus River. And I remember thinking to myself, I think we're going to crash in this river before we even get inserted. And without a doubt, this guy pops up, gets right to the opening, drops us in there, and is out of there in a matter of seconds. And to this day, it's some of the most impressive flying that I've ever done. And that's not the first and the only time I've seen um, night stalkers do something pretty incredible with their aircraft. Would you describe, y- you have hours and hours in many hours in an airplane aircraft before you can even apply to the night stalkers. But would you describe a little bit of green platoon and kind of what it takes to really identify is this person talented enough to be in this
1: unit? Sure. Um and one, one disclaimer, I'll tell you right now, maybe that hel- that Blackhawk pilot in the uh, Panama was flying a little bit too yeah. low, well, a little maybe. bit too fast. But uh, it's incredible. Um, Green platoon for the, the audience is just the, the training mechanism. Once the uh, they, once a, uh, a person, a male or female, successfully completes their assessment process, which is a, a week or ten days long, they get put in the in a a pool to go through the training and then their green platoon these days i don't even know how long it lasts but it was about a year um but it just assesses uh your ability to learn
0: because they
1: want they want raw skills they so let me back the story up a little bit when i was uh my first aviation assignment was in korea and i tried to apply it to the dice suckers Uh uh, from korea because i'm a former special forces guy former you know, special ops guy. So I know where I want to go and what I want to do at the time. They wouldn't take me really because it's because they didn't. And I, I still don't think they have the time to teach you the basics. Yeah. yeah. So they wanted a thousand hours and they wanted a hundred hours of goggles at that time. I'm sure it's changed by now, but, um, they wanted some experience under your belt to make sure that you were a safe pilot and, uh, and a competent pilot. And, uh, Oh, by the way, and one more disclaimer. I don't know if I'm in that talent pool you just talked about with the 160, <laughs> but uh, we yeah. we went through Green Platoon, and they, they continue to challenge you and teach you how to do what – and it's it's an exacting world. As you know, plus yeah. or minus 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. We live off plus or minus yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. Matter of fact, the funny story is uh, I tried to bring plus or minus 30 seconds home to my wife and kids, and yeah. I was, eventually – I bet that like, went over well. Dan, you got to stop doing this because <laughs> your kids don't. So if, if I wanted my kids to be somewhere on time, I would always tell them we had to be there 30 minutes prior yeah. so that, that I could relax and not worry about the time. <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, besides the physical aspect of Green Patoon, um, the mental aspect of Green Pertune, yeah. it was challenging intellectually, um, challenging physically. But, you know, through hardship bonds people. And yeah. so you were with similar people um, that wanted to, what I tell people all the time is you're striving for perfection. Yeah. Understanding that you'll never achieve it. Yeah. So making, making yourself better every day and, you know, you make mistakes along the way and, and, um, uh, you have to, you have to recover from those mistakes and to better yourself. And then, um, as, as time went on, you know, you get better and better and better and no. you want more. I tell people all the time, it's merry-go-round of life. It's pretty funny. Uh, most people, and I'll, I'll call the 99%ers out there, just love the merry-go-round of life. And if they if they get one brass ring along the way, then they're satisfied. Yeah. Guys like you, and guys like me, um, we get a brass ring just to put it in our lap and look right. for the next. Brass
0: ring. Yeah.
1: But anyways, Green Platoon, very challenging. Uh, uh, very. You don't know sometimes if you're doing well or not doing well, uh, but you—it's an upfront and personal type experience where there's no um, there's no there's nobody looking to stab you in the back, and there's yeah if you were making a mistake, you can expect someone to be in your face telling you you're making a mistake and you have to correct your actions.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted you to describe Green Platoon is because I wanted people to start to get a grasp on the camaraderie that you develop in the unit. And it's really hard. Truth is, for anybody who's not served around that kind of really talented, highly committed people, and then gone through those kind of hardships together, even my own closest family relationships don't share the camaraderie with yeah. guys like you and others that I served with in combat and it's hard to explain what builds that tight of a bond um, and green to green platoon is brutal and relentless for a long time and when you're done man there's it's in ama- the 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 abilities of those those leaders are amazing
1: What's amazing too, Jeff, and you hit the nail on the head. But I think through through hardship and through uh, through pain and suffering builds bonds. Yeah, definitely. So if I'm with you and we're doing something together, and and we are um, suffering either physically or mentally or psychologically or emotionally, you know, and we get through it, uh, we're bonded together for life. Yeah. But you know, Green Platoon, just like the training that you went through. Um, and when you get there, you think you're all that at the end, but you're not. <laughs> you're
0: not. You're definitely not. Yes, that's right.
1: <laughs> you just started. You're just at the bottom of the uh, barrel. And, and uh, I gotta, gotta real quick. Can I tell you a funny sure, story? Sure. Yeah. It? Love to. So um, served in uh, served in Panama, uh-huh. did all that stuff. Went to the went, went to the 160th in uh, the spring of 1990. And uh, as you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm yeah. went down. <clears throat> I got left at home. And so now I'm in the 160th, the most premier uh, flying organization in the world. My wife, who's a captain in the army at the time, deploys a Desert Shield, and Desert Storm. Oh yeah. I walk into the brigade, the 101st Aviation Brigade Family Support Group, and I walk in as the as only the male, yeah. as a spouse, supporting yeah. my wife that's going overseas. And the brigade commander's wife was so funny. She's like, "What are you, what are you doing here, sir?" <laughs> like I am just participated That's right. as a spouse yeah. Yeah. supporting my wife. So um, I guess my point was, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Just continue to train hard and, uh, and and deal with whatever and serve as long as you can, you know, because it's a taxing world. For
0: yeah, men. it is. Um, I want to talk about your, your wife a little bit more in just a second. Uh, I got one more uh, awesome story about the Night Stalkers before we get into that fateful 18 hour firefight. Um fast forward years later I'm a squad leader in the Ranger Regiment we're doing um some battalion training down in Panama and we're going through some jungle training most of my guys are brand new to the Ranger Regiment brand new to the jungle and brand new to the special operations task force so they've never been on the back of a uh, never been on the back of a 160th helicopter when we show up to Panama and I pull the pilot and the co-pilot off to the side. And I'm like, guys, I got a $20 bet for you that between the time that we take off and the time that you insert this bird full of my squad, basically my squad had an entire black hawk. By the time that we get to the target, I have $20 that says you can't make everybody in the back of this aircraft throw up. And they're like, yeah. oh. It's on now. And I noticed your reaction, Dan, because when I said, I bet you, you can't make everybody throw up, that included me, but they just kind of hurt, thought the rest of the squad. And I got to this day, the greatest ride I've ever experienced in my life. It was in, I don't even have the time to describe how amazing that flight was to that target that day. And their only stipulation was if they throw up, you have to clean it up. And I was like, deal. Uh, if you guys can get everybody throwing up in the back of this helicopter, then I'll clean it up and I'll give you $20 each. And they are like, oh, it's on now. So I want the listeners to know just how amazing these pilots are. Um, but Dan, now I got a bone to pick with you, actually with those pilots, because from that ride alone, that one helicopter ride, I have been ruined for the rest of my life. I can't get on a roller coaster anywhere in the world without sitting back and being bored because of the ride that I had on that helicopter over the hills and through the valleys in Panama. Um, every helic or every roller coaster that I've ever been on, frankly, just pales in comparison to the ride that I got um, on the back of
1: that helicopter in Panama. Well, but Jeff, he, and most of the listeners out there, you know, think that's a, really brutal story you know but the pilots would actually you know do maneuvers to make people sick in the back and most of the aviators out there including myself was like that is not our intent that's right because you know if you <clears throat> if you do um, those maneuvers to get somebody sick and back then when you get to target you know as well as i right. you're worthless you know but there, you're, you're talking about the bond between uh, pilots and, and the Rangers, and, and or the, a, well, let's a, just call
0: them the customers, what the, the, the nice talkers yeah. call them, and the customers yep. and in the back.
1: Customers in the back. But you're talking about a bond between you <clears> and the pilots um, that is forever lasting in my heart. Yeah, you know that that bonds us to uh, to do things uh, that's beyond what most people. Uh, understand, or most people think is is reasonable, um, but you know the the, uh, the most of the aviators out there just want to be a good supporting element yeah. to the ground force, yeah. you know, to the customers, and that and the, and you grow. At least I did. You grow uh, such a mutual respect between the ground forces' to commitment to the ground and your commitment to the customers, yeah. to the guys and back that you'll never leave them. I mean, and, and it, it, it kind of segues off into the um, of, of task force ranger world um, when we we bonded together so well that you know we aviators, most of us felt so helpless because you guys were stuck out there yeah. on the ground and yeah. we couldn't help you get out, you know, for those hours and hours and hours. So, anyways, um, I, I just think that you know it it's good you can't go on a roller coaster without thinking about the blackhawk but really for your listeners and for most of us aviators you know that's really not our intent you know is to make everybody sick in the back you know i'd much rather be healthy you know when we got to the ground,
0: i wanted my guys to know you need to be ready for anything at any time and it as intense as this ride might be um i did a Right before you were, you may remember right before we got ready to, uh, we assembled together in North Carolina and then launched for Somalia. We were doing a giant joint exercise out in Texas and I was riding on the pods of a little bird flying at night, really fast, really low. I didn't even realize how low and how fast we were going with the night stalkers until we came across this ranch out in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And we came across a herd of cattle. And as we came across the herd of t- cattle, it occurred to me that I'm looking at the cattle in the eyes as we're flying by them in a little bird at night under nods. And I was thinking that makes us just a few feet above ground level. But of course, it's flat for, you know, 100 miles out there. Just how fast we were going, how, how low we were going. I was thinking, I, I feel totally safe on this helicopter yep because of the people that are in the cockpit and and uh, there's nobody else that i would trust to do what i'm doing right now with but the night stalkers
1: and safety is paramount you know that as well as i sometimes the low flying is to get away from radar and 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 you're absolutely right you need to train to do that before the bullets are starting to fly and you're actually in combat you know so those guys you know the guys and girls the Ladies these days that are doing that job, I mean, they train hard, yeah. They train hard to exact their, their, their uh, techniques and exact their procedures to uh, make sure they support you guys as well as I can. You know,
0: I've been around the world's military and I will still say it to this day there is no one in a helicopter that can do what nine stalker pilots can do.
1: I'll tell you a quick story about 1993, and you know, like you just talked about, we were in North Carolina, we were in Texas, we were training. Uh, we were on again, off again. You know, going <laughs> that was to crazy. Somalia. Yeah. Um, my wife, who was uh, in the 101st, uh, she was a company commander with a planned deployment to Mogadishu, Somalia. We knew six to eight months out that she was leaving. I in just August.
0: learned this today. This is incredible. And so
1: she left. She left in August, and Jeff, this is a great story because um, my mother-in-law from New York comes down to take care of our 15-month-old boy. And uh, we get home on a Saturday night, and everything's turned off. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing yeah, anything. Yeah, I remember. The mission's done, yeah. right? And uh, my company commander, who will rela- will remain nameless, calls me up on the phone. Now, this is 1993, so there's no connectivity or right. anything. Um, I don't even know if my wife's okay. I'm sure she is, because she left uh, about a week or so before that. My, my company commander calls me and says, hey, Dad. I said, hey, boss, but why are you calling me on Saturday night? <laughs> um, uh, just just seeing how you're doing. So he, he's, he's tiptoeing around this whole subject. Yeah. and he finally says, he says, where's your mother-in-law? I said, she's here. She so leaves tomorrow morning going back to New York. And he says um Let me guess. He says, and, uh,
0: no, she doesn't.
1: No, no, no. He says a line that I'll remember for the rest of my life. He says, why don't you put your, your son on a plane with her? Wow. And I went. He didn't say he didn't have no. to say anything else. So I, I drive to Nashville, uh put them on the plane, and all of a sudden my pager goes off, nine yeah. and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, we get over there and my wife um, meets us at the at the airfield. Hey, not hi Dan, how are you? Where's our son? <laughs> she has absolutely <laughs> oh, no that's idea. So point, crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I thought about Jeff. I thought about telling her. I just put two diapers on him and left him a bowl of <laughs> yeah, food. Yeah, there's some. There's a bowl
0: of food and some instructions <laughs> pinned to his diaper. He'll be fine.
1: But that was not the right moment to yeah. do that. But uh, yeah. So, anyways, that started the whole the whole process of her and I being over there together.
0: Dan, I haven't had a guest on this show that's a military family without thanking the family for their sacrifice. In your case, you're making sacrifices for your wife's career in the U.S. Army. She's making sacrifices for your career and your son, your family, your whole family's making sacrifices. And man, I want to tell you as a warrior, thank you for your service. But as a military family, thank you for your sacrifice at the same time. I just learned about all of this today.
1: Well, fast forward the story. So, my wife's a West Point graduate. Um, both my kids are West Pointers. And uh, the son served for five years and now he's in a PhD program. And my daughter, you may have to bleep this out, but she's a <laughs> badass helicopter pilot. Awesome.
0: <laughs> all right. Nice. Oh. Um, um,
1: but it's just, yeah, it's funny how it all, all, all happens, yeah. You know, it all puts together.
0: Well, let's get to the reason for this interview, man. Um, I'm going to say something to you face-to-face. Well, actually, over this, uh, you know, video that I have not had a chance to say to you in person, but I've said about you a lot. Dan, I've been shot at. I've been in uh, night stalker helicopters that had to make emergency landings from gunfire, but I have never in my life seen an act of courage in a helicopter like I've seen from you in Somalia. And I want, I, I did all of this preliminary to describe how amazing the night stalkers are to set up. What you did in Somalia and not just you, but everybody that was in the air, the truth is everybody that was on the ground, everybody that was in the vehicles, the whole force did were was uh, equally courageous. But man, what you did, I I will take to my grave as the single most courageous thing I've ever seen somebody do in the air in combat. So would you just I want to turn things over to you now and tell them your role in Task Force Ranger um, all the, tell them, take us all the way up to putting Rangers in the ropes down
1: on Wolcott's yep. crash site. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Cause we, as, as most of your readers know, I mean, we were out for six different times, you know, before, <clears throat> before that happened, I had the, the role with, uh, Herb Rodriguez and Kenny Hickman yeah. and Daryl McKeon. Um, the four of us had the role of being the combat search and rescue, um, CSAR, is basically what it is. Hey, I, want we to,
0: I, I want to pause for a second. I need to explain this phrase to uh, the listener. I went into Just Cause as the theater level CSAR. And CSAR basically means bad stuff really happened. It uh, Something bad really, really happened. And we need you to go where something bad really happened. Nobody wants to be on the CSAR, yeah. but it's vitally important to the mission. And you are the, you're designated as the CSAR element for the whole thing. Force. Sorry to interrupt. And I have
1: a, I have a whole ground force in the back that were all, you know, medics and uh, um, uh, litters and and, and... and a couple of war fighters first, back there. Yeah. Yeah. First responders. And we had all kinds of people ready to react to whatever type of search and rescue mission we got called on. The week before 3 October, on the 25th of September, um, the 101st had a Blackhawk shot down yeah, by an I remember it caused us to go into a rehearsal mode. And so we we took an aircraft um, and then uh, had that aircraft go down. I don't know if you remember this. And we rehearsed the CSAR operation. Um, No, I don't remember doing that. Yeah. You don't remember doing that because you probably weren't participating (laughs) in it. And uh, the sad part about the whole thing, and it's still – still hurts my heart to this day, is we use Super 6-1 as the downer.
0: Oh, man. Yeah.
1: And so as the as listeners will understand if they don't know already, Super 6-1 was the first Blackhawk that got shot yeah. down with, yeah. uh, with Cliff Walcott and Donovan Briley on uh-huh. board. Um, but anyways, we rehearsed the whole thing because we thought at that point in time, you know, if, if we're needed in the, in the fight, then maybe we should be rehearsing yeah. it to make right. sure we yeah. got everything down. So fast forward the operation, uh, three October. Um, as everybody understands, we lost you know a deer ranger uh, and the insertion of the uh-huh. whole thing, and then uh, <clears throat> everything was going as planned, you know, and, until that first Blackhawk um, got shot with an RPG and the first Blackhawk went down. And then and then my guys in the back were all scrambling because they knew that they knew what was going to happen. Yeah, sure. So it was our it was our time to participate in the fight. Um, because the, the city was so dense, uh, we did not, uh, know exactly where the aircraft Uh landed. We had observation aircraft above us. They were trying to help us. And eventually Super 6-2 with Mike Dufina and Jimmy Cohn on board, they ended up giving me steering directions in the air. You probably don't (laughs) even know this, but it was like, turn left, stop. Turn right, stop. Go forward two blocks, stop. All right, And so... When uh, when I when I got into a hover, um, I remember I remember this to this day. I went over a power line, make sure my tail didn't hit the power yeah. line. I settled into about thirty two feet, and uh, as the readers understand, the fast ropes were about one hundred and twenty foot long. you yeah. never want to put a um, right. ground guy on a, a rope for that long. So thirty two feet, and we're settled down. I looked at my left door, and. Uh, literally, left less than a block away was Super Six One's aircraft. Yeah, and so um, everything's going well. I think that we're getting small arms um, because it's a it's a metal me- metallic clicking yeah. that you hear yeah. as yeah. you as you know. It's not a very uh, welcoming sound at all. Um, but at some point in time, an RPG strikes my aircraft so hard it rocked us left and yeah. right, fore and aft. Um, and I was on the flight controls at the time. Herb Rodriguez, uh, my co-pilot was also monitoring them, but my initial reactions was to get out of yep. there. Uh, so when I pulled in power and, uh, started climbing, um, to this day, Kenny Hickman and Daryl McKee in the back were screaming at me uh-huh. because we had, we had soldiers on the ropes. Yep. They were clinging for their life at that point in time because they're on a they're on a merry-go-round ride, <laughs> Try, trying to figure out what to do next. And I think I only think we we climbed probably two to three hundred feet above the ground, and then uh, Kenny and uh, Daryl talked me back down into yep. that hover hole. So at this point in time, aircraft's damaged, but it's flyable. And uh, we settled back into that uh, hover hole to let those uh, people off the rope. And then we started, we really realized we had an aircraft down. Um, With one already down in the city, um, my initial intent was to get back to the airfield. So all four of us talked and uh, the damage to the aircraft was not significant, but it was damaged and whistling It had a hole in the blade uh, transmission oil was uh, was bleeding out the back, and I was losing transmission oil pressure. Transmission oil temperature was climbing. But as fate would have it, and you know fate kind of jumps yep. into, into yep. everything we do, right? Yep. I turn the aircraft towards the airfield, and I see a soccer field. Yeah. And uh, it's soccer field is halfway between me and the airfield. And I told, uh, we talked about it, the boys and I all agreed. to say, okay, let's get to the soccer field uh-huh. and see, see how the aircraft is doing. Get to the soccer field, um, still flyable, but we're losing transmission oil rapidly. And uh, with the Blackhawk, as uh, (laughs) any Blackhawk pilots will listen out there, they know you can you can fly with uh, a fly of Blackhawk without any transmission oil for about thirty minutes. Uh So we get to the airfield, uh, we land on the runway, and uh, and then I realize. We're on the only runway in Mogadishu yeah, yeah. during a firefight. Right. <laughs> so I need I told, to clear
0: this aircraft off the runway. Yep. I
1: told the boys, I said, I, I, I got to pick it up to a hover. So I picked it up to a hover and parked it. And then uh, when I shut it down and took a look at the blade, Jeff, I mean, I don't know how that blade held together. Yeah. Because I, I took a picture of it and sent it to Sikorsky uh, weeks later and just thanked him because yeah. it looked like someone took a bite out of it. Right. But I don't even know how that blade held together. Yeah.
0: I want to pause. I I want to pause you for there, right there, because this is the moment, and I saw this after the fact. So at this point in the fight, I'm actually driving Blackburn back to the base. I'm under fire. Pilla is killed. I make this call on the command net that Pilla's dead. And I'm trying to fight my way back to the airfield. But honestly, I'm in over my head in this really small three vehicle convoy. After the fight is over with, we all get together, you you may remember this, and we're reviewing some of the surveillance footage from our aircraft that are in the airs, and I watched what you did. And that moment has never, ever left me, because when your helicopter got hit, it is very, very well noticeable from the surveillance footage. And I watched the RPG hit the tail. I watch you start to lift the aircraft. I see that there's still rangers on the ropes and any human being would say, I got to get out of here. We're already taking small arms fire. I can hear the clicking in the metal. We just took a arp an explosive device to the tail. We're all going to die if we stay in the air where we're at. And then I watched you put that helicopter right back in and to a hover and hold it there until everybody got off the rope and they cut the ropes away. And Dan, to this day, that is the most courageous thing I've ever seen
1: somebody do in the air in my life. It wasn't me, Jeff. It was those two those two uh, crew chiefs in yeah. the back, Kenny Hickman and Daryl McGeehan, that really talked me out of what I wanted to do.
0: Sure. Everybody on that aircraft wanted to get the heck out of there because <laughs> we're going to die if we stay up here in the right. air. And you stayed up there in the air which is entirely contrary to human nature. And I don't know if I can even find the right words to explain that to the audience. Um, But your, your role doesn't stop. Man, if it was just that alone, you would be on my list of one of my, uh, one of my most uh, respected aviators, but your role doesn't stop there. So now pick up with what you do next after you take the aircraft back to the airfield.
1: Yeah, it's, and I, and I, I really – I'll tell you in the audience, it, it's the bond and the commitment to the guys in the back yeah. that caused my next move and caused – so we landed in the airfield. We had one spare aircraft. The one spare aircraft just had an engine change that morning and had engine runs done so any aviator out there knows that there's a whole process of maintenance test flights and, yeah. and tweaking of engines. And the maintenance – Pilot came over to me, and and the cowling, the uh, engine cover is off, and the engine is is bare bones there. And I told the maintenance guy, I said, you are not going to get a chance to fly this aircraft. We have got the only PLS system on the board for the listeners. It's a personnel locator system, which tracks radios that you guys are carrying and gives us us, um, a heading and distance to where that radio is. So we're the only ones that can track any type of ground movement um, in the air, and then, and then I, I had a, a, a huge, powerful commitment to get back into the fight yeah. because I left guys on the ground that I had bombed with over yeah, the weeks of time. So um, it took us an hour. It took us literally an hour to get gas to switch things from my aircraft to the spare aircraft, put the engine cowling on, get it, everything ready to go, and. To this day, that the crew was ready to get back out in the fight. Yeah, it, yeah. As and then, sadly enough, um, when we got back up in the air, um, Mike Durant and uh, <clears throat> Ray Frank's aircraft yeah. had been shot down, and uh, they were battling that world. And then um, we rolled into Super Six Two's uh, downed aircraft situation, and I had a had a chance to pick up Brad hauling. Yeah, who got he got injured at that. Um, in that aircraft, Super 6 2, and took him back to the cache. And then it was a matter of, uh, I think, human nature, but maybe it's just our personalities. You have this hope and you have this um, wish that people were okay. Yeah. So until, like you talked about, Pella, um, we heard that Cliff Walcott was dead on the radio. I had this hope that Donald yeah, right. who with his co pilot, was alive. Mike Durant, um, Randy, uh, Randy uh, Shugart and Gary Gordon, and uh, his Mike's crew. We had a hope all night yeah, long right. that they were alive. So we uh, we spent the next 16 hours. Um, it, well, let me back the story up because I told the maintenance guy, I said, "You're not going to get a chance to fly this aircraft." But tell me what I need to look for yeah. in case something. We're not wrong sure with. if
0: it's all the way put back together, <laughs> but I'm going to put this thing in the air no matter what. Yeah,
1: but you need to tell me if there's an engine problem what i'm looking for in the engine problem so 16 hours later we we spent all night long um getting rocked with rpgs yeah. and following radios that we thought were uh, possessed by americans uh-huh. that were heading towards the newport and they were they were just radios that were on that the somalis had um but you know it was our it was our desires to to track down that last person. Sure that was maybe trying to, um, save themselves. Yeah. And so 16 hours later we brought it back and that's when I found out that, uh, Donovan was, had passed away and, and, uh, and I was exhausted yeah. about 18 and a half hours later.
0: I don't know. honestly, this isn't about setting records. I don't know what the record for the most hours in the air over a hostile gunfight is, but yeah. that 18 hours must be close. Um, just because of the amount of the limitations on how much time a pilot can spend in the air. And, and I think rightly so. Um, and you broke almost all of those limitations and not, you broke almost all of those rules just to stay up there and to try to help guys uh, get out alive if possible.
1: Yeah. But, you know, Jeff, it was important. Um, I stayed up there for 24, 36 hours to bring that last man back, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, as fate would have it, we, we lost so many soldiers that day and so many soldiers got injured, you know, and in, in that, in that firefight. Um, and as a supporting role of battle, you know, an aviator, you know, you just want to do everything you can to help you guys. And we felt so helpless, you know, yeah. when you guys were in the fight because we couldn't get down there to help, yeah. you You know, we couldn't get down there to get you out of there, you know? Um, but it was, a it was a it was an ordeal that obviously will be forever in our hearts, forever sure. in our course. soul. Yeah, um, but I think we fought. I think we fought hard. I think we learned a whole bunch of lessons that uh, I carried forward. Um, literally six months after we left uh, Mogadishu, I was rolled into Haiti you know, on the Haitian vacation, I called it yeah. because we were...
0: I was taking ca- part in Operation Turnaround 2. We were getting ready to <laughs> JMPI the last couple of people when the <laughs> JSOC commander came out there and called the whole thing called off, off. Uh, right before... I mean, the engines were already running before we, yeah. we called them off. Yep.
1: I mean, we're two and a half hours from each hour. we all rehearsed and we're all... We kicked the carrier group off the USS America, yeah, as yep, you know, and yep. we put 60 helicopters on board and... Um, we had learned so many lessons from Mogadishu that we were rolling right into Haiti. Yeah. I think it, you know, and I, I continued to serve for a lot of years after that, uh, with the hopes of of passing forward all the uh, lessons learned from that day and yeah. those days to the next fight.
0: I got to tell you about a moment that happened to me on the ground while you're getting ready to go back up in the air. Um, I have just brought Blackburn back. Dominic Pillow has been killed. Vehicles are shot to pieces, like your helicopter. I learned you've just went in and you've inserted the search and rescue force in where Super 6-1 has gone down. Now Super 6-4 has gone down, Jeff. We can't get the QRF out there fast enough. Jeff, you need to go back on the Humvees and you need to get uh, out to Durant's crash site. And I'll never forget it. Uh, a great combat leader who I have the utmost respect for at the time, our battalion LNO, a guy by the name of Major Craig Nixon, came up to me and he pulled me off to the side, squad leader. And he said, hey, Sergeant, you're about to do the toughest thing we've, we can ask somebody to do in combat. You're about to lead your men back into, and this is his exact words, in, back into a hot LZ. He said, Jeff, it's really one thing to go into an LZ not knowing how hot it's going to be. And you just respond to it with when you get there. It's a whole nother animal to go lead guys right back into the exact same hot LZ a second time. And then he said something to me that I frankly feel embarrassed that I didn't recognize. He said, Jeff, I'm looking at your men and they're scared and they need to hear from you. So you need to go talk to them. And he kind of pat me on the back and walked away. And I grabbed a metal folding chair, stood on top of it, said, all right, guys, gather around. Here's what we're going to do next and load the vehicles. Let's wash the blood out of the back. Load the vehicles. We're going to the Durant crash site. That, to this day, Major Craig Nixon's challenge to me has hung in my mind on countless years not months years of combat deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan with the special operations task force um and when i saw you leave your already uh, shot up black hawk get on a spare black hawk and go back into the same hot LZ and not just go back there but spend the next 16 hours there Dan, there's not another aviator that I have ever met in my life. And this is the one thing that I wanted to say to you in this episode, that I respect more than you. And it's not just the fact that you kept that aircraft level after taking an RPG to the tail while people were sliding down the ropes. It's the fact that you got back in the fight and stayed in the fight all night long because you and I both know the courage that it took. Now, everybody that we worked with would have done it but it takes insane courage to do what you just described for our listeners.
1: Well, that, Jeff, you're very kind and, and thank you very much for those um, maybe inappropriate, but kind words, <laughs> but they're I,
0: entirely uh, appropriate.
1: <laughs> um, and it wasn't, you know, I, I, guess at some point in time, it's not about your personal safety. It's yeah. about the guys you fight right. with and, and the, and the hardships and the challenges that they're they're going through, and I, you know, you just just want to help. You know, at some point in time, you don't know how to help. Right. You don't know what you're doing to uh, to participate in, in their uh, hopefully goodness. Um, but you're trying to help them better their situation. Yeah. And we, you know, we as aviators, uh, we we had we had a three dimensional picture that you guys didn't right. have on the ground. And you know, Mike Durant's crash site is one of the things that always haunted me and caused me to, to come up and develop um, tactic techniques and procedures for the next fight right. in case we had to get people out of a, a, a compromised situation in a hurry. And so I'll, I'll just tell you that we rehearsed a bunch of stuff that that uh, dealt with uh, hooking people on the fast ropes yeah. and, and pulling them out of yeah. sights yeah. in a hurry. But, uh, you know, those those brave souls and, you know, the two Medal of Honor recipients and and the brave souls of, of the crew, um, they were just left, um, because of overwhelming situations yeah, yeah. there in the city. And there's, you know, you, you can't go backwards. You can't should have, would have, could have that event, but you can definitely carry it forward and better right. the situation next yeah. time if it's presented to you. Um, and I would, you know, and then, and then, you know, a few hours later, um, Stan would end up waking me up. And, uh, Mike Durant's alive, uh, that next day. And I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been up for 24 hours, yeah. you know, and I even remember Stan waking me up by the way, but, uh, and that, and then it became the next fight. Next yeah. fight was to get Mike That's Durant right. back. Yeah, absolutely. And so besides refitting, uh, re kitting and re-bodying our task force, and you remember, yeah. I mean, in, in two or three days, we were ready to go back out to right. fight, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh, I think some of us had revenge in our eyes, and some of us were challenged to uh, kind of finish the fight. But then, my purpose, along with uh, Captain John Magnus, who we recently lost—you yeah, know,
0: what a shame—in
1: a hiking yeah. app, Um it became our focus to get Mike Durant back. Yeah, Because he was—he was—and you know, it was—it was amazing how all it happened. And you know, you, we kind of celebrate the third of October, but I celebrate the fourteenth of October because that's when Mike got. Removed.
0: Like you, uh, I, so I went out to the Durant crash site, got shot to pieces, linked up with McKnight's vehicles and brought them back to the base. I'm getting ready to roll back out because at this point, nobody's made it to the Durant crash site. And I get stopped by the task force commander who says, we can't keep sending these Humvees out there. They're light skin Humvees, fiberglass and aluminum. And that's when we made the call for help. Um, I joined in, my guys stayed on the same three home or same two home bees and joined in with this big multinational convoy rolled back out in the city streets about 11 o'clock that night. And I stayed out there, the last vehicle to make it back in the next day, even the Pakistani tanks and the Malaysian APCs left the target really? before we did. But I also need to say to you, Dan, that I am convinced the mini guns, the Night Stalker mini guns won the fight carried the fight that night. On the ground, we were responding to what's 10 feet away from us. I don't have the three-dimensional picture, as you said. And most of the fight is uh it's it's over in a couple of seconds because it's literally 10 feet away. But the big crowds, the big threats, the big problems were all solved by the miniguns until, and I'll never forget the sound of this, about 2:30 in the morning when the little birds were rolling down the street over our head. And for the first time in that fight, I heard the first 2.75 millimeter rocket go off. And I thought, thank God we finally got rockets in the rocket pods. Um, <laughs> but the miniguns and the rockets, man, they, yeah. I, I am alive today because of you, because of your crew chiefs, because of those miniguns that were over my head.
1: Well, Jeff, you've been so kind, you know, um, giving me credit for everything that I do. I'll, I'll tell you, you and uh, and the guys that were with you on the ground, especially the guys in the vehicle that went out numerous times to deal with whatever he had to deal with, um, it was the most amazing event, you know, watching you guys continue to go out and to continue to try to help the fight. But for the listeners, they talk about the minigun versus the 2.75-inch rocket. um, um I wasn't a Little Bird pilot at the time, but it became a Little Bird pilot yeah. in the future. I'll just tell you that the enemy was so close to the friendlies that most of the pilots wouldn't feel comfortable yeah. shooting a 2.75 right. inch rocket. And the minigun was absolutely the weapon of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a 7.62, it's a spin stabilized projectile, and it just, uh, it does a much better job in close in ranges that you guys are having to deal with all night long.
0: Yeah. That, that minigun made it possible for me to serve. I walked away with, by that, because of that minigun and God's, God's gracious hand, I walked out of those city streets without a fight. Actually, I drove out with, uh, without a scratch. I mean,
1: yeah, Um, yeah. and the, But I do want to
0: say, like you, I'm totally exhausted. I fall straight asleep and I get woke up about two hours later and I'm running into the little TV room in the hangar to watch what you're watching. Everybody else is watching live on the international news as everybody from the Durant crash site is being their bodies are being dragged through the streets and they're being mutilated right in front of us. And the anger. And the frustration, I can't even describe, but I'm going to say something to you, Dan, because of a comment that you just made. I felt personally responsible for what the world was seeing because I never actually made it to Durant. And Durant will tell you to this day, he could hear my 50 cal 100 meters away, but I never made it that last 100 meters. I've always felt like I owed Carmen Gordon and Stephanie Shugart uh, you know, an apology. I Owed the, I'm the reason why those bodies were being dragged through the streets because I never got a chance to make it all the way to the crash site, and maybe I would have made it before that crash site was overrun and those bodies were desecrated, but hindsight's 2020, and and I won't go back and you know try to undo the past. Right.
1: It's amazing though, Jeff. you talk about that personal uh, commitment to the fight, and I think uh, every one of us that day had a personal commitment. To each other, to basically. each other. Yeah, yeah. basically. And at, at the end of the day, the, the, the reason we were out there and the, the people we took off the target, um, that all went away. And then when that first aircraft went down, or maybe even when Blackburn, you know, um, ended up dying, God rest his soul. Um, when, when things started going south, as we call it, you know, and for the listeners, mm-hmm. it just means things are not going well. Um, we kind of... Bonded up, you know, kind of linked arms together, and say, "Okay, now it's about you and it's about me, right. but it's more about everybody else, and we got to get everybody out of here."
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and the hopelessness that we feel—I mean, we would have given up the whole force to help Mike uh, Durant and his crash site, you know, pull those bodies out um, successfully if we were ever been, yeah, able to of do. Of course, that.
0: if there but, was, you know. As,
1: as fate would have it go- uh if fate no. would have it we weren't able to do that we weren't able to you know put the assets forward but you know like i said you know hindsight's 2020 i yeah. you know i carry forward that thought and uh um to the next battle and to the next series sure. of battles yeah. as we as we continue to fight the yeah. fight and 911 comes yeah. down you know 8 years later
0: if there was a scene i'm trying to Bring this conversation to a close right now that I would have put in the movie Black Hawk Down. It's the scene right after your aircraft has been hit, right after you've taken it back to the airfield, when you and your crew go to that spare aircraft. Because if you want to know the level of commitment and courage of Task Force Ranger, that scene right there shows it and stays in the fight. You stay in the fight, not just for the next 16 hours. But really, for decades until you retire after 40 years of service, Dan, you have inspired me as a leader. You've inspired me as a warrior. And I mean, for decades, this conversation I should have had with you 30 years ago. Um, But thank you for the kind of warrior and the leader that you are, man.
1: Yeah, let me uh, and I know you want to close this thing out. And I do appreciate your time more than anything else. But Jeff, thank you for your commitment and your passion and uh, your compassion when it comes to uh, uh, talking to people and just bringing up different situations and they're really pulling, pulling it out of individuals and um, to make the story kind of known to the masses yeah. out there. You know, what's funny is just like your story about you going to Mike Durant's site, it's been 30 years. But the, and there's, there's tidbits and there's little bits of information about the fight that day that I'm, I still learn yeah, every time I too. talk to somebody because <laughs> you just don't know yeah. the whole big picture of it. Yeah. Um, it was since in 1993, it was such a sensitive, emotional issue. It took the Night Stalkers, it took us two years to even talk about it. Yeah. And and in your organization and mine also, we did a great job of just kind of what we call AAR, you know, after action review, uh-huh. just to make sure we better the fight for the next fight. Right. But it was such an emotional and we lost a lot of friends and we lost, you know, injured a lot of people, but we couldn't talk about it. We rolled right into the next fight, you know. So uh, I appreciate your time talking about what we're doing.
0: My first guest ever on Unbeatable was Kenny Thomas, who was, of course, in the city streets of Somalia with me. And, uh, the listeners need to know this. I didn't talk about Somalia to anybody. Didn't talk about it to my family. I didn't even talk about it to other Rangers because I didn't want to hear their, their responses. And then Kenny said something to me years later that really, really touched my heart. He said, Jeff, you owe it to the guys that are in national Arlington national cemetery to tell what happened and to tell their story. And that was the moment I decided, you know what? I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna talk about it a lot. And if God gives me the, ch- the opportunity, I'm not even gonna talk about me. I'm gonna talk about other people because the world needs to know what the what the guys that you and I served with did during that fight. And that's and thank, why- and
1: thank you for doing.
0: It. Yeah, man. That's why I just wanna say thank you for being part of this special mini series. These are the stories that I wish would have made it into the movie. Dan, you're amazing. Thanks, man. Thanks,
1: Jeff. Appreciate your time.
0: I meant every word that I said to Dan during this episode. There is no one I am more impressed by, actually more inspired by, in an aircraft than Dan Gelato and what he did over my head in Somalia. Dan, thank you. I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for you, buddy. I want to thank the guests. I want to thank all of the audience that are listening to this episode. And if you just started hearing this mini series, man, there's a lot of amazing conversations that we've had in the past more than 100 episodes that you should go back and check out. Maybe you should just go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Or if you want to watch the video, go subscribe on our YouTube channel. There's some pretty incredible guests that we've talked to. There's also some pretty incredible people that stay connected with us on social media. And our fan of the week for this week is Desley Powell. And I just wanna say to Desley, thank you for being so engaged and so involved on social media. If you haven't found us on social media, you can just simply go out there and search at Unbeatable Podcast and you'll stumble across us on almost any social media platform. Dan is an amazing, legendary warrior, not just an aviator, but there's also some pretty incredible, amazing people that are very connected with this podcast. We call them the Unbeatable Army. And if you wanna become part of the Unbeatable Army, it's totally free. I have some free giveaways, I have some free content. I send information to your inbox every week and we'll never spam you, we'll never blow up your email. But if you wanna become part of the Unbeatable Army also, just simply go over to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I got two more episodes of guests that I'm going to bring you stories that I think should be in the movie, Black Hawk Down, but they never made it. So you got to come back next week and hear my interview with my guest next week. See you next time.